0: Um, On other notes, one of my IBM keyboards is now essentially unusable without professional restoration. I cleaned it. I've never cleaned them. But um, the death of IBM keyboards is the plastic rivets that hold the assembly inside to the back plate. Eventually the plastic, you know, loses its, becomes brittle and the plastic rivets pop off. And I think I've lost enough of them that I'm having some the key issues. Then again...
1: So they're just to hold, to hold plates together? Can you that drill them the out? That is the actual
0: fix is to quote-unquote bolt mod the keyboards, which is, you know, you take them all apart, you remove all the plastic rivets, and you bolt it together or screw it together. But I'm a little nervous, in A, acquiring the tools that I need and actually doing that being successful. So I have a little drill press if that would help, in terms of getting a really
2: accurate perpendicular to the the plane of the board to drill out. The board is (laughs) carved.
1: You're on, you're on. Good luck with that. That
0: is the magic of the IBM keyboard. Instead of sculpting the keycaps, the keycaps are all the same, and the the backplate in the keyboard is curved. That is the expensive way. One of the posts that holds up the curved metal black plane has some damage in this keyboard as well. And again, it's plastic fatigue, and it's a really super small part. I'm just not sure how best to repair it without like, you know, replacing the entire bottom case of the keyboard. I was
2: gonna say, like, you can spend three hundred dollars on a new keyboard and then it solves the problem, right?
0: I can get. I mean, that's just it. I can get uh, re- professionally restored, bolt modded IBM keyboards for like $250, two fifty, two hundred. I was kidding, but yeah, you could. Welcome to the Practical
2: Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work.
0: This week, we're talking about outsourcing and well, insourcing. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the observability, DevOps, and SRE spaces? We are. Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So this is a
2: conversation that we've had a bunch of different times in in various small places on this, this podcast, but I wanted to have it more focused. We've been talking about this internally a little bit, and it's that decision of when is this worth hiring an external vendor versus doing it yourself? We're not talking about what used to be called offshoring. Um, there's a bunch of interesting and interleaved um, cultural and racial stereotypes that go along with that, and that is not what today's episode is about. We're talking about how do you manage the decision about hiring full-time staff versus hiring
0: you know, consultants or vendors or contractors to do work. And I think that figuring out that line of, of building up a team to, to tackle a problem versus acquiring a solution from a third-party vendor. There's a lot of gray area, uh, especially as you know small companies scale to big companies. And it's really hard to reason about, I think.
1: I don't know, right now, my company's going through a contraction. We've been getting smaller. Money is super tight and things still need to get done. And hiring staff is one of the things we're not allowed to do. So it's been pretty simple.
0: <laughs> and in most of the cases where I've been restricted budgetarily, you know, it's we have to do everything in house uh, because we just don't have budget to you know add that extra AWS service or or acquire that vendor's product.
1: Yeah, well, we're going the exact opposite. We can't hire but. If you need, if you can pay for it, and it's just done, <laughs> if it's just that, done. we might be able to pay for. it. Yeah, if it's a one-time
2: cost. Yeah. Uh, years ago, and I was granted. Raise your hand if it's yeah, ever. Remember, been this is the podcast. Done. Years ago, Jack and I were. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Jack right. and I were working at a university years ago, and the team that we were on supported two or three hundred servers, and our annual operating budget for technology—not for people, but for t- for tech was five figures and it was low five figures and that had to cover power supplies and hard drives and replacements and new machines. We essentially had no money to do anything and everything had to be done in-house. So there was never a conversation about, oh, we'll we'll just buy a tool. We'll just pay a vendor. We'll, we'll do something because there wasn't ever any app.
0: How do you most efficiently use that? Use those three machines that you have spare.
2: And I've also worked environments where it's we don't have time to think about it. It's going to cost too much money to have an engineer sit down and figure out the problem. And there's a pre-canned solution we can just pay for. Just pay for it. Just be done
0: and move on. We have but that's the classic to solution do. for yes. like RDS in in Amazon. Why would you ever run a database when you knew RDS can spin it up and back it up and it just work?
3: Yeah, I mean, with with yeah. companies <laughs> starting today, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> with with companies starting today, I mean, I wonder. You know, when you start talking about raw cost of a, a EC2 instance or GCP instance, those are not necessarily cheaper than if you were to go out and buy a machine from Dell or some other vendor. And, you know, if, especially if you were to break that cost over multiple years. But if you're going to have more than one machine and you most likely are, then you start have to worry about things like how do you provision? How do you uh, upgrade? How do you replace broken hardware? And at that point, I believe the cost has shifted towards cloud instances at this point. I right? never
0: want to replace another hard drive ever again. <laughs> no. but, I
3: mean, years ago, um, some of some folks
2: on this, in this recording were working at a large technology company together as contractors. And somebody had espoused the opinion that moving to the cloud off of bare metal was going to save money. And it's like, no, 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 no. Cloud conversions are never about saving money. In terms of like raw dollar cost, cloud conversions are about being able. to Yeah, move it's about faster, buying velocity, which lets you grow velocity. faster. Velocity. Yep. There we go. Exactly. But it's not cheaper.
3: Right, and I, I guess I mean total cost. Like, if you're a startup and you have one or two engineers, that 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 engineer time is very valuable and very air quote expensive. So to be sitting there and figuring out, you know, how do we how do we how do a provisioning tool? Cable? Oh, here's here's the foreman. Right. <laughs> All that exactly. Too.
2: <laughs> and in those cases the the time that you're paying the engineers isn't even the cost of what, you know, having them work on a problem is because you're also making the decision not to work on other things by making them work on either crimping a cable or whatever it is or writing a an inventory system. You want to have your engineers doing things that move your company forward. You don't want to be replicating other people's
1: work. Right now our big thing is we are needing things done that we don't have the expertise for, but we also don't need it long term. And we're not a technology company. Technology is not our product. So our internal staff has a lot of specialized knowledge on what we do do. And we need to use that where it's, where it's most useful. Don't have them doing and right now we we have outsourced building a new ad structure i nobody in house knows ad and we have no i use was about to, to say
3: that. i i don't know if i could even do that like <laughs> if someone held a gun to my head and say design an ad you know structure i i don't know if i could actually do that anymore
1: i i know i couldn't but i'm pretty sure i could learn it
3: well yeah i know
1: several but great companies that's not companies. a good use of my time and that <laughs> yeah and so we have paid somebody else to do it for us.
0: And I think there's this
1: tier. And as much as I am a do-it-myself p- philosophy person, it just doesn't make sense.
0: There's so there's so much infrastructure-wise that you need to move the company forward to go back to what Brendan was saying, that you know, there's really no question about, are you going to stand up your own data center or are you going to get an AWS account? Are you going to implement your own backups? Or are you going to use uh, AWS RDS? Uh, running your own Kubernetes clusters is not something I would really recommend to folks unless you're doing something very specific in your business model and that relates to to, to supporting Kubernetes. For most folks, uh, using GKE works just as well, if not better than anything else. But yet, it's those those things that move the company forward versus this other tier of of things that you could buy that don't necessarily move the company forward that fall into that we're really confused how to how to create a specific practice. So we can outsource that, right? Yeah, and one of the big examples of this is things like this su- the success of Datadog
2: is a prime example. So Datadog does Metrics and logs and observability and whatever as a hosted service. I make
0: fun of Datadog a lot because I like them. They're a successful company.
2: They do a good job of it. Like, I think I think they charge too much. And I think their product isn't as good as it could be. But they have really won mind share. And a lot of what they have done is said, here's a really easy way to instrument your code with StatsD or with Prometheus or with Graphite or with whatever it is you want to use, we'll take it. And it makes it so compelling to say, I'm just, no, look, it's easier to just implement their stack and not worry about it. But you have to be careful because in that data in that in that stream of everything that you're dumping into your your observability, observability,
0: why is that worked so observability hard observability pipeline? I don't know.
2: It's frustrating. But in that in that stream of data there's all kinds of stuff. We've we've all seen it where somebody is writing a chat application and then starts accidentally logging the text of the chat messages to the log output. And now that goes into your archive and it's like, but that's customer data. That's not, that's not a log
3: that what, and you have problems. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think like, you know, I, I would, I would argue that especially at a startup stage, you're going to be doing a lot of outsourcing. The question really is, when do you start pulling some of those things in house as you grow and what are the tipping points? What are the, what are the break points where you say, okay, well this can come back in and Metrics and logging, I, I would almost argue should be near not not necessarily near the end, but you better be mature before you start bringing those in because those can rapidly go up in cost.
2: Yeah, that was why I brought up Datadog as an example. But like this is very similar to the RDS conversation. If you are if you're running these services that are complex and take a lot of brain power, when they're really small, it is very worth it to not hire an engineer or two engineers, or whatever, to just host it somewhere. But as it gets bigger and more complicated and more critical to the operation of your organization, you need to consider bringing it back in. You need to consider saying, um, no, this this one's actually big enough that we can hire people and really own this space. And definitely logging in metrics are complicated, but at small volumes, it's hard to justify bringing in like
0: internal competency. And observability and companies are really in this, super interesting space that I'm kind of jealous of. Um, There are a lot of observability companies out there in some various form or factor or technology, whatever. And it's, it's this really interesting space to be in where you can charge by the bite. You can charge by the event. And if your company that if the client company that's paying for the observability solution is successful, their bites, their events that they're sending as telemetry is going to grow exponentially <laughs> if the company isn't successful or doesn't have good team culture or team management and telemetry kind of gets forgotten and unmaintained it also grows exponentially <laughs> and so it doesn't really matter if you you know are <laughs> successful or have a great culture or not uh your observability costs with a lot of vendors can go out of control really really quickly Which kind of puts you in the situation of you're spending so much time trying to prune and maintain that pipeline that you're not spending any time in getting insight and value out of the data.
2: This reminds me of a conversation that Jared and I had with somebody from Netflix at Monitorama a bunch of years ago. And they were grousing about like ballparking how much they spent on their dev environment. And it was astronomical like what percentage of their budget went to observability and to their dev environment to allow them to operate at the speed they did. And Netflix was very aware of the costs and like how much they were spending on it. But it's really easy to lose track of it and go, wait a minute, why did the AWS bill jump by $15,000 this month?
1: Where is that? What what cost was that? It's interesting. I, I'm right now shepherding somebody on a project who is looking at how to build out logging infrastructure for us and I'm actually only having them really look at the dev environment because production's going to be significantly less. If it works for dev and if it's cost effective at dev, eh, production's not much more. Now that's reasonably specific to our environment, but it's just that, you know, people do more. In dev, there's more things going on. They have debug messages turned on more often. Wait, you can turn those off. There's just more <laughs> volume there. Well, you can. That reminds me. We know. That reminds don't. me of the old joke
2: about everyone has a dev environment. Some people also have a dedicated prod environment.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like that's the ideal case where you know it, what it's yeah. going to look like. That you're not you're not fluctuating based on user traffic or something because. You're not selling a technology product. You're, you're doing something. You're servicing an internal team of people. So you have right. a pretty good idea of what your state's going to look like. Whereas if you're doing a, a technology thing that is public facing, like a SaaS or an IIS or whatever service, then when you have a spike in demand, suddenly you have a spike in everything else.
1: Yeah. Uh, we uh, One vendor, we were, I kept asking questions. We're like, look, we don't have a public face. There's nothing that's visible to the public about what we do.
2: You should find vendors that charge based on like external
1: user requests. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It has some nice advantages. It does.
0: Yeah. Especially when you can count those on one hand for the entire month.
1: But I mean, we still have requirements and, and there's still stuff coming in and we still have to get things done. And you know, we have such a limited budget that when we look at, at some of these things, we're like, I could do it, but I've got a dozen other things I can do. And this one, I know I can go find something off the shelf and pay somebody to integrate it. And it, uh, we recently did that with an entire trading platform for th- that we had, that we had built and it worked, but the cost of maintaining it and scaling it was getting to where we're like, you know what, we can just go buy something. The rent is too damn high. The other thing this all reminds me of,
2: though, is I think it was Apple, but it may have been one of the other big tech players that said, don't outsource your core competencies. And for a lot of folks, like running email is not like that is not what makes your business different from other people's. You really should not be hosting your own email unless you get to a size where it's super important that you maintain control of it at all times. Then you do it now. It becomes a core thing you have to do because you have to have that that certainty of where things are. But yeah, the other, the other side of the, the decision of when to bring things back in or when to send things out to vendors or contractors is the idea that, okay, this is core to our business. Like Apple's not going to outsource material design or um, material selection for like the metals and the glass they use in their phones. That is core to their business. It's it's, it's a differentiator for them.
0: What networking hardware they use doesn't really. I mean, matter. observability is no one's core competency. That's the, one of the parts that sort of interests me really in this space. It's no one's core competency, really, except for a few people that find it super interesting. But yet there comes this point well, where observability is also very core to your business.
2: I, I would argue that um, Netflix and Google have demonstrated that having that as a core competency like netflix wrote was it atlas they wrote atlas yes yeah um and google has monarch or whatever it is like some of the big players have built their own stacks that have given them tremendous advantages in terms of debugging and scaling and understanding how things go but you're right jack on the whole most companies it is not a core competency
3: well, I, I I think that maybe is even going a step farther. Like I, I was going to say, like no matter what company you are, I would argue that your database, your data, is your core competency. So as you grow, one of the first things you should bring in house, you should hire some DBAs. You should own your database and not have that uh managed by somebody else. That's just Golf that's claps just my for
0: opinion. Jared, um, Your data is your most precious but, asset
3: that doesn't mean you need to go write your own RDMS. Or, I mean, your your own database server, right? I mean, like you don't need to do that to, to mirror a little bit what what Brendan was saying, like with Monarch, but you could run Postgres or MySQL or whatever. And I view monitoring very similar, although it's at the tail end of that, that's still user data. That's still data that is uh key to you. And you don't necessarily want to hand that over to, to, to a third party who can then end up leaking it.
2: In the same vein, your source con- your source code tracking system, your bug, si- bug or ticketing system, um, your documentation system all should really be in-house. You should not hire somebody external to run it
0: and a- have it a- hosted a- on somebody Atlassian, else's surface. The cloud.
3: <laughs> well, you can you can well, it, not it's not so much anymore. You don't have right, to run it's, it's it. It's dying the cloud. off, but you could still get Jira and those others to run in your own data center, but that's getting I think they're discontinuing that this yeah. year. Next yeah, year. they
2: are. Atlassian's really pushing yeah. to end that.
0: And yeah, there's so much of that precious customer data um, that gets into your ticketing system as you work through new customer-facing issues that have, have, that have caused a bug somewhere and you're trying to track it down and be
2: able to reproduce it. But even if it isn't customer data, even if it's just, you know, how did we design this product? How did we decide which whatever we're doing? All of that knowledge, all of that internal institutional knowledge is tied up in those three systems. Your ticketing system. How do we improve these algorithms? Yeah, exactly. Your tracking system, or your, your tracking, tracking system, your documentation system, and your source control, source code repositories. Those three things for anybody who operates tech in any way, not like, Ken, you're mentioning that you're, you're not a, a tech company that, that sells a tech product externally. Oh no!
1: But algorithms are like for algorithms.
2: The documentation everything. and then the tracking of how did we do a thing—that yes. is all core to modern business. You have to have those, and you have to understand them, and you have to own those well. And a lot of
0: folks sort of like, "Yeah, we just want to hire somebody. It's fine." It's like,
2: "Oh, that's that's not and so I good."
0: Really, not enjoy and, running Jira myself.
3: No, but you could run GitLab. Oh, true. Which which solves all three of. Or to a, to a degree, what Brendan was just saying, because there's your there's your source code repository, there's your ticketing system, and you can also do documentation through either pages or something, or even within issues or something else. So,
0: and GitLab's a really great product now. Now that I've acquired some experience with them,
3: and it's. And, and I can tell you right now, it's not hard to run. No, they have a great unibus or whatever they call it. Omnibus, whatever the installer is, or whatever the packaging is. And it's it, it really handles itself very well. You don't even have to go that far. They got containers now. Or that too. Yeah, so schedule
2: it in your Kubernetes cluster and then make backups yep. and practice restoring backups to another cluster. And then you own it all. And now you actually have the data, you have the bits. And that's the... Again, back to the original topic that that's the core of this is deciding when it is worth the risk to not have it in-house or it's worth the cost to keep it in-house. Do any of you have like a rule of thumb or a, a general yardstick by which you measure like in terms of dollar cost
0: or of late, I've started measuring your know, dollar cost with vendors by you know how many FTEs is that?
1: I was about to say for me it's been bodies how many? when i how many people am i going to need to run something
0: if we're paying for this observability solution that's costing you know millions of dollars a year well that could very well be a nice size observability team
3: yeah i i agree um i i think it makes the most sense to compare it to an fte cost and i mean cuz uh you know if something that can be i don't want to say painful but it's just tedious but it only requires a half a FTE or possibly even a full FTE it may be worth it to spend that on an outs or on a provider instead of an employee so that way you don't have to deal with it well it's also
1: it's not just FTE because even if I run it in-house I'm going to be paying a- a- right. AWS costs so yeah that's the know, hidden cost what that I see in my cost? field
0: quite often even if you buy an on-premise vendor solution for part of your observability stack, uh, you still got to have staff that maintains that and makes sure it's reliable yep. and backs up and solves problems and helps other teams.
1: It is amazing how, how it's amazing how much that gets missed in the um, upper management discussions on in or out. Is you know, hey. Yeah, well, even if we bring it in, we still have to run this many EC2s or it's going to be a database, an RDS instance of this size. Even if we send it
0: out, we've got to have the same staff uh, maintaining the product and making sure it's usable. And conversely, um,
2: years ago, we were looking at a, a very expensive logging
0: platform. I've been trying very hard not to name them.
2: And the license fee was more than we were currently paying for all of the hardware and the staff time to run it. And people really wanted to move to it and that was, we looked at it and we said, okay, so we pay the license fee and we double the hardware footprint and we don't save any FTEs because we, instead of maintaining the open source thing we've been maintaining, we're now maintaining the vendor provided thing that we have to learn and maintain. So the costs, the, the runtime cost doubles. We add a licensing cost and the FTE count doesn't change this is not a sound financial decision we can still do it but it, like in terms of the, now you have to weigh are the benefits of the very expensive vendor product I mean product, maybe
0: there's some specific analysis or workflow that that enables that's super valuable to to moving forward but i doubt it
1: yeah it, it's not saying no it's saying your <laughs> justification bar just got really high
3: yeah one thing that I've always, uh, I guess, pondered on or, or thought about, and mainly because I I do have, a, I guess, or I focus on the technical aspects of it, is it's always interesting to see when companies come back in and build out their own data centers and stuff. And obviously, for like Amazon or Google, that makes sense because that's their core competency, right? But even Twitter, I think, are they still – do they still have hardware or have they finally moved to the cloud? I, I can't remember, but – for the longest time Twitter ran their own data centers and uh you know as a a technology company they're a technology company right um you know it's it's debatable whether that actually makes sense but it's always been fascinating to me to see which companies do that which companies actually go out and go down to the lowest level and say we're actually we're not even going to we're not even going to rent colo we're going to build our own data centers we're going to manage the relationships with the uh, telecommunications companies to get bring in different fiber. We're gonna uh, staff up people to manage those knocks. We're gonna uh, handle all the data, or I mean, all the hardware. And I mean, some of them even uh, Amazon and Google, uh, Facebook build their own hardware. And just seeing that, I've, I've I've always, you know, I'm not saying that that makes sense for a lot of people. It's just always, I guess, for the the tech enthusiast in me, it's always interesting to read about that and. Uh, all the advances that some of these companies, or some of the great links that these companies go to to edge out just that much I mean, more. Especially the Facebook
0: um, part of that story. Facebook's core business isn't, you know, renting you an API to do cloud services. Their core business is, well, advertisement and showing you a pretty website and you know, data. data. <laughs> so, yeah, data definitely needs to be their core competency. Data they need to keep that in house like we've we've already discussed that theme works true but the fact that they have scaled beyond uh for most part using a standard cloud provider um when they don't specialize in providing those same services is really interesting to me as well cuz i think that sort of elucidates uh, that point Moment. of there comes a point where This isn't your core competency, but it's so core to your business.
1: Well, even from a financial standpoint, when you're scaling out to that size, I mean, no matter what deal you cut with AWS or whatever, if you're running 24 seven, you're paying them more than it costs them to do it because they're making a profit. So if you run it yourself, you don't have to pay that. You don't have to pay the, the their profit margin.
3: Right. Well, and then also you get the benefit of, I mean, especially, I mean, because Facebook leads that, what is it called? The open hardware? Uh, open compute. Open compute. Thank you. Um, You know, they can actually make decisions on how the hardware looks. And as we've seen from Apple's latest M1 <laughs> chips, when you control the stack vertically, yeah. you can really optimize yes. things and you know while the M1 may be lackluster in some of the other performances just the tiny little things like window animations because they know how or they 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 built the compiler they built the the programming language they have control of it all to the point to where those tiny little things that are done thousands and thousands of times can be optimized from software to hardware and you know somebody like Facebook that pays for them to have that kind of control
2: well, the other thing okay. to me about open compute that's even more interesting than the servers is the network infrastructure. Yes, because like ninety percent of the features of a high-end Cisco gear, people don't use or they don't need. They need their particular ten percent, right? Right. So in the open compute world, the networking side of it, you get these crazy, crazy fast network switches and routers and whatnot that have exactly the features that that company needs. And nothing extra. So they're not paying for the ability to possibly turn it on later. They're like, no, no, no. I, I need, you know, 400 gigabit backbone or backplane on my Switch. And I need this many ports. And I don't really care about level 7 firewalls. D- don't care at all. What I, I need, you know, specifically this kind of capacity. So they buy, essentially, custom networking hardware that does exactly what they want. And that's the that's one of the huge advantages to somebody like Facebook who does so much data movement inside their inside their own data centers that having control of the networking hardware is almost as important, if not more important, than controlling which kind of servers they get.
3: Well, and also, wasn't that one of Amazon's first custom ARM chips? It wasn't actually for their compute. Uh, it was actually for their networking gear, wasn't it? i have to look that up. That sounds right, but I'm not 100% on that one. Yeah, I wouldn't want to
1: put money down. don't know.
2: And I know that Apple runs their own data centers. But I don't know if they do custom hardware. Obviously, Google does their own data centers and their own custom hardware because they've talked about it for, what, 15 years now?
0: Yeah, I've been to um, a couple of conference presentations about some of the really cool hardware that Facebook is working with.
2: And you can find it on eBay. Like, you can find the older generations as they offload older equipment. And some of it's like, if I had a non-standard size rack and appropriate power... I would totally pick some of these things up, but I...
0: Your dryer plug is already used for your coffee machine. (laughs) 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 Pretty much, yeah.
3: I I think to sum it up, though, you don't start off trying to run your own data center. Uh, You you obviously outsource a lot of things, but then prioritize bringing in talent slash uh, expertise on keeping your data close, whether that's the database or uh, source control, something like that. And then you branch out from there.
0: And the bar is pretty high for for data center, having a data center on-premises and having a success, successful company that's driven by that. Uh, but there's the same story for observability. If you're a small startup, go buy Datadog. Go buy Honeycomb. There's a billion companies out there that do a really good job with small scale observability or even medium scale observability. But once you, there, there's a tipping point where you realize you need to keep your data close at home. Your data is your most valuable asset. It's how you judge and measure customer experience, how your customers interact with your product and the health of your business. There comes a point in really in the medium-sized company who are bringing observability in-house and building a team to make sure the observability is done well, uh, I think is the right path to go for.
1: Right now we're looking at whether to go with an external logging solution or internal. And it's really tough because we're so small that paying some, somebody or setting that up internally is, is a tough bar to, to to get to, however, as soon as you say, but yeah, but if there's trade data getting logged, oh, well, maybe it's not so. Come bad.
0: on, haven't you found the the brand new product Amazon has just re- announced called uh, AWS Open Search?
1: <laughs> yeah, let's put trade data in there.
0: What could possibly go Since wrong? Since Amazon has now renamed their <laughs> offering for Elastic, but that's another episode.
1: Ooh. I think we'll... uh, Oh, yeah. revisit the third time. (laughs) You want to talk about an evergreen topic. Elasticsearch is the gift that keeps on giving for us.
2: (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm Or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Duesendorf. I'm
3: Jack Neely. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks,
1: and good night. Martin, I hope you are paying attention.